Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Ronald Waldo, the author of Dead Ball Trailblazers, single-season records of the modern era. Numerous records established during baseball's dead ball era, which was from 1900 to 1919, still stand today. Record-setting seasons of achievements like Jack Chesbro's 41 wins and futility like John Goschnauer's 98 errors are brought to life in this book. Dead Ball Trailblazers tells the story of 12 single-season record-setters. Ronald T. Waldo has written eight books on baseball history, with many devoted to examining the game during this dead ball era. A longtime member of the Society for American Baseball Research, each of his books covering the dead ball era received nominations for the Larry Ritter Book Award. Welcome, Ronald Waldo. Thank you very much for that kind intro, Lawrence, and I appreciate you inviting me on the show. Yeah, and I love the nominations for the Larry Ritter Book Award. Congratulations on that. I know they're nominations, but I know somebody has to uh, suggest your book to Sabre. It's not something you do yourself. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. It actually sometimes comes as a surprise when you find out it's nominated because it kind of comes out of the blue. But it's yeah. always gratifying to know that uh, fellow peers appreciate your work. Yeah, I'll do a shameless plug. I I also uh, wrote a book on the dead ball era on Eddie Plank and was surprised when it was nominated for that award and, of course, didn't win it. But there's some great people writing about this era. And it's probably, to me, it's besides the early days of the 1800s, the early years of baseball, the dead ball era to me is, is fascinating. I'm not sure why. I'm sure it is to you. Why do you write about it so much? Uh well, initially, I gravitated more to the 1920s because of the pirate. I'm a you know, big pirate, Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and I you know, love their history. But because of the 25 and 27 Pirates teams both making it to the World Series, over time, it, I worked my way back. And with Hannes Wagner, and then my first uh, book I wrote was a biography about Fred Clark. And I kind of really appreciated and started loving the dead ball era. And from there, I mean, it just was a natural progression that I wanted to find out more about different individuals who played then and different teams. And it, it, I ended up uh, writing other books relevant to that particular time period in baseball history. But it's just, a, it is, it, it kind of has a captivating uh, feel to it, that era. It yeah. It kind of sets the tone for baseball down the road. Yeah, it was an interesting time. Uh, before Babe Ruth really it becomes the slugger, that changes everything, and I guess while there was spitballing was still allowed, right? Yes, uh, I think they outlawed that right. Yeah, right when you make the transition to the uh, Roaring Twenties. Yeah. yeah, unless of course it was grandfathered in for those like Burley Grimes who already were in the league. Right, right, right. And of course, this is before integration. Um, so I mean, looking at who's in this book there are some interesting characters some of them everybody knows like ty cobb and tris speaker maybe nap Lodge- 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 
Uh, I, of course, know a little bit about Rube Waddell and uh, Marquard, uh, a couple others. But who in the book, out of the, the chapters that you uh, included, which one to you? Is there is there one that stands out as the most interesting or the weirdest? or may, Maybe those are two uh, separate conversations. Uh, for me, uh, well, most of the uh, subjects covered were uh, single-season records of a positive nature, but the actual ones that really I enjoyed the most were the three that I included that were of a negative connotation, which would be Gotchnar committing 98 errors in 1903, uh, Vic Willis losing 29 games in 1905, and uh, Jack Neighbors losing 19 consecutive games for a really bad Philadelphia Athletics team in 1916. Of those three, I think the Neighbors chapter was the one that I had an appreciation for the most because he was kind of thrown into the fire as a major leaguer before he was ready. Tried to do the best he could, uh, but on the team he was playing for, it just was an impossibility. Uh, he, he lost his first start that year, won his second one, so he went 1-1 one and one early on, and then he lost 19 uh, consecutive games to finish at 1-20 that season. And the year before when he debuted late in the year, in 1915, he did not win a game, so his Major League slate is one victory over his career of uh, basically a season and a half, plus a few games in 1917. Yeah. But it just was an unfortunate situation for him. I mean, Connie Mack readily admitted he wasn't ready for the big show, but he, he didn't want to farm a mott because at that time it was kind of a rebuild. And he wanted to be hands-on with certain people to make sure that he could develop them the way that he wanted to develop them. Yeah, to call it a rebuild, so it, yeah, it's <laughs> putting it mildly, what Connie yeah. Mack did to that team, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, I have writing the Plank book, I know that I think in 13 they win the World Series, and I'm trying to recall what year Eddie went to the Federal League, it was either 14 or 15. I think it was, at, yeah, I think it was my 15, I think. I yeah. Think, yeah, right. So, yeah. Mac uh, lets go of the key pitchers on the team before 15. I think he breaks up the $100,000 infield around that time, too. So, neighbors didn't have any of those guys behind him, did he? No, and the interesting thing was, that through doing the research, I mean, you kind of think about these things if you come across them, but that kind of leaves your head. Because when you're doing research, you always come across something else. You're like, wow, that's interesting. Maybe i got to consider that down the road for something. But Whitey Witt played shortstop for uh, the athletics that year and had a tough year, just like mostly everybody did. Well, later on in the 20s, he actually was a very decent center fielder for the early Yankee teams when Babe Ruth first joined them, which I you know, had not known until I you know, did this project. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's kind of interesting that he was part of that team and then at least a few years later, he was able to be part of a new dynasty in the 20s. So, Neighbors' record is how many straight losses? Uh, 19, which is interesting because in the book I cover uh, Rube Marquardt's uh, consecutive victory streak in 1912 at the start of the season, which was also 19. So I actually find that kind <laughs> of interesting that the uh, modern era record for most consecutive wins in a season and most consecutive losses is the same number. wonder what it is about that number 19. You just quite, can't, can't quite get to 20, huh? huh. Interesting. Well, and for neighbors, I guess 
with the scoring stuff back then there was always discrepancies between different newspapers they actually originally did credit him with 20 in a row but it was changed correctly to uh i believe a game where tom sheehan was uh given the loss which was the correct uh decision for the uh, rules at that time so yeah he could have actually uh hit that 20 mark if there had been a little finagling with the rules oh what an awful thing to hang on somebody well we're going to be right back we're talking to ronald waldo the author of dead ball trailblazers Sunbury Press Books opens the door to Pennsylvania Dutch and German history with our imprint, Distal Fink Press. Find out about the lives of figures in early American history through the Muhlenbergs of Pennsylvania or Conrad Weiser, Friend of Colonist and Mohawk by Paul A. Wallace, Joseph G. Rosengardens, The German Soldier in the Wars of the United States, or The Indians of Berks County by D.B. Bruner. Check out the wide variety of available works, both fiction and nonfiction, at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Ronald Waldo, the author of Dead Ball Trailblazers, and we're talking about the unfortunate period where pitcher Jack Neighbors lost 19 consecutive games for the Philadelphia Athletics back in around 1916. And one of the things that really struck me as I was reading that chapter, and I I edited the book for for Ron, uh, was Neighbors was from Montevallo, Alabama. And I saw that, and I thought I was misreading something, because I never see that town name anywhere for anything. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, my parents live in Montevallo, Alabama. They have since the late 90s. I'm not from there, but they moved south years ago. And I didn't know there was a ball player from Montevallo. And pretty amazing that there's a major league record holder from there. So uh, I was thinking I'd try to go find out more about Jack Neighbors and his career but I, I am curious uh it, were there some games he almost won or were they yeah. all just really lopsided he had three games i believe it was early september including a pretty decent uh, outing against walter johnson where i believe he gave up three earned runs and pitched all complete games of course i think two of them were only eight innings because they were on the road right and he lost all three so yeah it was a tough uh tough go for not just him but other pitchers on the staff uh people might be more familiar with the name bullet joe bush Mm -hmm. he was with the athletics and uh end up with the yankees he kind of was what you would call the stopper that year he uh stopped a 20 game losing streak at one point in the summer and he actually pitched a no hitter too which is kind of an interesting did he win that one (laughs) yes he did he actually did win that one (laughs) Because there were some games where pitchers gave up scant amount of hits, and they still ended up getting tagged with a loss. Yeah. Yeah. I I know some games from doing the uh, book, there was, I know one game, I think it was earlier in the year, where both teams, it was just a walk fest. Uh, Neither, uh, anybody used by either team just could not stop giving free passes to first base. Well, So I'm going to guess that a lot of, you know, lack of hitting by that team, bad fielding and some yeah. control issues kind of were a microcosm of where problems arose. Well, you have yeah. a couple Yeah, you have a couple guys in here that these, these records will probably never be broken in all likelihood. At least maybe Chesbro's 41 wins. Uh, the 98 errors. Caution hours, 98 errors. Um, or, do you kind of agree with that? Or there, is there somebody else you think the 
unlikely no, to ever I, I would agree with that. Uh, today's game, there's no, there's just, I mean, do you think we're actually ever another 30 game winner? Yeah. Anybody like you know, Denny McLean, I believe it was 68. Right. Uh, yeah, 98 errors. That's that's pretty much uh, you can etch that one in stone. And of course, Owen Chief Wilson's 36 triples. Yeah, that's one that's I don't think will be approached when he yeah he did that in 1912. I mean, for one thing, Ford's field was set up as a yeah layout for people to hit triples because Pirates owner Barney Dreyfus that was. To him, the most exciting play in baseball. A guy running around the bases and digging for third. I mean, he considered that more exciting than home runs. Eh. Which is probably why the way they set up the dimensions at Forbes Field, they get hit a home run there. Well, it would have to be a Bonds home run or inside the Parker. But yeah, he ben- uh, Wilson benefited from the dimensions in 1912. He hit 24 of his triples at Forbes Field and 12 on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you kind of need a a strange configuration in the outfield, maybe a very deep, deep outfield, but, uh, or weird corners, opposing, that kind of thing. Yeah. Opposing players started doing, like, basically playing them by the center field flagpole <laughs> late in the year. Yeah. Figuring, hey, he can get one in front of us, but uh, he would, yeah, but he was hitting them over them or between them. And a lot of them he was doing opposite, you know, like he was a left-handed hitter, so he was hitting them opposite field or right center, or, I mean, opposite field or left center. So he actually was pretty adept at that. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing was when he got traded to the Cardinals, uh, wow, that was, I believe, after the 1913 season, his three years with the Cardinals, he didn't even, those three years combined, I think he only had 20 triples. So definitely Forbes Field was a benefit for him. Yeah. Now, I know that Chief Bender had Native American roots and actually went through the Carlisle Indian School near where I'm at. Um. What about Chief Wilson? Does he have any? Is that just a nickname, was, or uh, does he have he a connection? Was a na- native of Texas, mm-hmm. and the one story that I came across said that uh, in his rookie season, him and Honus Wagner were were at a Wild West show, and one of the Indian chiefs, uh, dark complexion, resembled, I guess, uh, Wilson was well suntanned, so. Wagner dubbed him with the nickname Chief because of that. <laughs> That's a good story. Of course, story. when you think of that, I also think back to the fact that, you know, Rube Waddell being in the book, and that was something that uh, always struck his fancy uh, when Wild West shows would be uh, appearing in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. For a few, uh, little bit of time, he actually played in Pittsburgh, a year and two, two months, and it would be a distraction for him where he'd be off wandering to watch that because it usually was adjacent to Exposition Park on right. the uh, north side of Pittsburgh. Well, I, I mean, I, Rube was into that, too. Yeah, I remember Rube, uh, when writing about Plank, some weird things about Waddell liking fire trucks and fire halls and that kind of thing and running out to do that. Do you see yeah, anything the, like that? <laughs> he, well, liked the, the, he liked the, the Wild West and the fire trucks. He actually took the... Uh, he was a volunteer farmer, and he took it very seriously. I mean, mm-hmm. he actually heroically uh, helped on many occasions in situations with, with the fire. I know, uh, yeah, the 1904 season is what I chronicle in the book when he fanned 349 batters. At the end of the year, when the team was finishing up in Washington, he actually uh, was very helpful with a fire at a large livery stable in the downtown area that I guess carriages of uh, politicians and diplomats from uh, other countries 
you know, in Europe and such. Uh, yeah, he was very instrumental in saving a lot of that stuff and saving horses and stuff. Yeah, he took it very seriously. I know a lot of stuff I, I had always read that made it like it was a joke. Yeah. That, it, you know, he's, you know, you know, Mac, Mac can't depend on him because he's, here's a fire truck and he runs out, jumps the fence, and that's it. He's done for the day pitching. It's time to bring in a reliever. But, uh, yeah, he, he was very, uh, he took it seriously. So, do you think a lot about what, What's been written about Rube Waddell is just more made up, or like was he really a little slow and a little a very distracted fellow, or was he, uh, or was he just kind of goofy, funny, comedic type? Well, uh, uh, for my current project, I'm finishing up on the Pirates from the Barney Dreyfus area, uh, players that kind of fell out of favor during the time that he owned the club. I know Rube Waddell's father, John, one time commented that my son is a trifle lightheaded at times. <laughs> okay, that's a nice so way to that, put it. That's, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. And one time, and Pink Holly, who at the time wasn't, well, he was with the Pirates. He pitched for other teams, too. Bought John Wandell a beer at a tavern in Pittsburgh. And he thanked him, and he said, I wish my son was more like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Holly thought that was kind of odd. I guess that would have been about when Rube broke in. He would have been with Louisville at the time. Yeah. Because I believe that, yeah, that's when Hawley pitched for the Pirates. So, Waddell, he, he died kind of young. Well, a lot of these guys did compared to modern, uh, current uh, standards, but uh, you know, quite a character. Hey, uh, we need to take another break. I've been talking to Ronald Waldo, the author of Dead Ball Trailblazers. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors and serves readers young and old alike. Speckled Egg Press is our juvenile non-fiction imprint. Check out works from authors like Joanne Risso, author of Over the Sea and In the Field, Dan Shudder's The Mouse with a Broken Tail, or The Amazing Adventures of Solomon Screech Owl, brought to us by Beth Lancione. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find an author and a story you'd like to know. I'm back talking to Ronald Waldo, the author of Dead Ball Trailblazers, and we've been discussing Rube Waddell. And during the break, a question came out about uh, wrestling alligators in Florida. <laughs> Did Rube Waddell rescue, uh, rescue, not wrestle alligators? You know anything about that? Uh, I've read about that story. That's one of those ones I'd give it a 50-50 shot. I mean, there are some Rube stories that are kind of embellished. And as as were some from that era, because it was that was without TV and before radio, that was the manner to promote baseball was through the the printed work in you know yeah. magazines like Sporting Life, Sporting News, Baseball Magazine, or newspapers. So sometimes you had to romance it a little or make them seem like they were kind of larger than life icons because you were trying to bring people to the ballparks to watch games. That one I could see it. I could see it. It's a, that one's one of them tough ones where I'm not. It's a 50, like I said, it's a fifty-fifty. Or I mean, I think that was down in Florida, right? They yeah. Supposedly did that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would make sense. Yeah. Unless it was. kind of like I don't know if you're familiar with the. If you, this is off the topic, but Ping Bodie was a very uh, eccentric outfielder. Yeah, I kind of remember the name. Dead baller, and I believe he played with Ruth a little on the Yankees. Well, there was the supposed. Uh, Spaghetti eating contest between him and an ostrich. <laughs> now that is a, that was a fabrication. In my opinion, was a fabrication. I uh, mean, 
W.O. McGeehan was the person that wrote it up. Mm-hmm. It was relevant. I think it was a big boxing match at that time period. This was in, It was either 1919, 1920 where he wrote that up. But that one kind of, yeah. So it, it, some of them you got to be a little skeptical on. Ronald. Many of them, though, I, I would say are probably true. Are you telling me that there was an era of fake news, faker than our era of fake news? <laughs> That's pretty funny. You know, we have well, a. Little... I will say, I will say one thing. Sometimes teams did tailor the narrative to fit their side of stories. Mm-hmm. There was disputes with players, so, which kind of is always I find interesting because they they had all the control back then before free agency. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so. We're here in the third segment, so I wanted to get to Gulchnauer in the 98 errors. How on earth does somebody keep their job in the major leagues making that many mistakes? And by, I mean, I'm thinking he's probably got the error by quite a bit. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've, I've never really analyzed who's had the most errors in a season. And, but, not, but 98, um, that's you know, every other game, almost every game. Yeah, he had he had some bad stretches that year. <laughs> uh, they tried uh, a veteran, a semi-veteran. I think he'd been around a few years. Billy Klingman, a few games, but he wasn't any better. And I guess the explanation of manager Bill Armour at the time was uh, we'd search for other people, but we couldn't find anybody that was suitable at that time. I mean, what he, so from what I took from that was he didn't want to do a panic situation and just get somebody to get somebody. Mm-hmm. I think they, at the end of the year, they picked up Terry Turner, who really actually played third base more uh, as a possible uh, replacement. Of course, that Gochnar, or Gochnar, I guess it's Gochnar, uh, after that year, he went back to the minors. Yeah. So he actually he de- he debuted at the end of 1901 with the uh, Brooklyn Superbas, and then he jumped over the American League, and that he played in '02 and '03 with Cleveland, and that was the extent of his major league career. So I'm assuming shortstop, right? Yes. You don't get that many chances. And he was considered chances. up to that season a very decent fielding shortstop. <laughs> but the thing was, he actually made amazing plays when it were difficult. Yeah. But it was when he had a simple chance, or well, part of it too is. Uh, at the end of that year, they basically said that uh, John had not uh, kept in good shape mm. throughout the season, which was basically language at the time for he was drinking and boozing too much. And he actually did apologize for his behavior after the season. Well, I can tell you, boozing does mess up very basic things. So making the simple plays, I'm sure, would be tough <laughs> if you were a bit buzzed on beer or whiskey or whatever he was drinking back then. But yes, uh, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the guys. I mean, uh, yeah. Rube Waddell. He he, al- he also was someone that uh, probably went beyond what a normal uh, athlete should in that uh, respect, as far as drinking goes. Yeah. So we got to talk about Tyrus Cobb before we go. Of course, he makes the book. You can't write a book about the dead ball era without him popping up somewhere doing something, and. Uh, but you have him in for swiping bases. What was his record? Uh, 96 in uh, 1915. Right. And he could have probably had more, but uh, his arm started giving out on him, his throwing arm. 
I guess he used to, uh, when he first came up, would practice with the pitchers, and manager Huey, Huey Jennings feels that probably caused problems for the arm. Right. And he actually started worrying about it, and he actually had one of his worst batting slumps of his career. So if you're not getting on base, then obviously you can't st- steal second if you're not making it the first, because his aspiration was the uh, top 100 steals that year. He just came up four short. Yeah, now he, he held that record till was it Lou Brock? Uh, Maury Wills first. Maury Wills, then, that's right. Yeah, then Lou Brock broke Maury Wills and then Ricky. Ricky, Ricky yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I remember Ricky doing it. Um, uh, but that, Ty was the one of the chapters where I actually had a dilemma. There were two I, on who I wanted to pick. I actually mm-hmm. gave thought to Clyde Mion of the uh, Senators because he had, that Ty broke his record. Uh because it was weird, it was Eddie Collins, I think, held it one or two seasons, and Clyde Mion held it. But I figured because it was Cobb and, you know, how much he was larger than life, I, and his record stood for a long, much more long time, decades, yeah. than Clyde Mion's did. It was only a few years. What, so did I, you, what do you think of Ty Cobb, or what do you think about Ty Cobb in his life and his career? Do you have any opinions about him after writing so many books on the dead ball era? Uh, it's a lot of, well, if Learson's book kind of clears some things up, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what, what his personal stuff was. I mean, I try to stick with his, uh, actual baseball, you know, baseball bill anymore. Mm-hmm. But I'm, 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 I know one thing. I think the, hey, he had no friends among other major leaguers. I think that's actually something that, uh, is blown out of proportion and false. Yeah. I think he actually did have. In fact, in my in the chapter, it's mentioned uh, when they were talking about a trade with uh, the Red Sox for him, him for Speaker, Chris Speaker. It, it mentioned that, uh, yeah, who was I guess uh, Larry Gardner was a good friend on, on the team, and he liked the manager at the time. So yeah, and he was actually pretty good friends with Walter Johnson too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that part I would say is probably yeah. A little bit faster. I recall Cobb going on hunting expeditions. A lot of those guys back then went on hunting expeditions. I know Eddie Plank went on a number. He was great friends with Eddie Collins. They were best friends. Uh, Ty Cobb and I think Walter Johnson also hunted together. Maybe others, if I recall. Yeah, I think the two, it was a big respect for each other, too. That's kind of mm-hmm. how you form a bond like that. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, Cobb had respect for him and Johnson likewise reciprocated and why not they were probably two of the most dominating players of that that era I mean Johnson is a pitcher with Christy Matthews and I mean as you're getting into the second decade of the uh, 20th century uh, Cy Young was already yeah. finishing up so it would definitely have been Walter I mean, you know Christy though was kind of on the Don slider too he did most of his damage in the first uh, decade of that century Walter Johnson was amazing I, I remember uh and I, I might have this wrong, but I believe Eddie Plank's last game was a duel with Walter Johnson that went extra innings, and Walter won one to nothing. Standard and it, procedure for that time period, right? And Eddie, Eddie retired. <laughs> I mean, two, <laughs> yeah. two pitchers walking uh, up in a classic duel, where you basically you're trying to push one run across because you figure that might be what gets the job done. Well, Ron, we have a couple minutes left. Why don't we... Uh, why don't we talk about what you're writing now? You, you mentioned the book on the pirates. How's that coming along? Uh, I'm in the uh, closing stages. I'm doing the uh, 
uh, want the final edit through uh, using Grammarly. <laughs> Good, thank uh, but, you for uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm actually in the process of that right now. But the, that one is uh, it basically, as I said, I, I, it's kind of like titled Days of Reckoning, and more or less it's a book about players who fell out of favor with ownership and team management on the Pittsburgh Pirates when Barney Dreyfus uh, owned the club, which he started late 1899 until he uh, passed away in 1932 and there's a lot of really good players who find their ticket punched out of pittsburgh i mean we're talking hall of famers like max carey mm-hmm. kai kai collar uh jack chesbro that's in in this book for winning 41 games uh other great stars but it's it's usually those not so little known but when you do a book like this but my favorite uh subject in the book is local product he actually from a suburb of Pittsburgh. Name is Al Mamou. He actually had two solid seasons pitching for the Pirates in the second uh, decade of the 20th century, where he topped the 20 victory uh, plateau. But he came from a rich family. His father, grandfather, were part of a business awning and uh, tent business, so they were well to do. They were pretty rich, and he was kind of probably a little spoiled. Uh-huh. And he ran afoul with uh, management eventually. Actually. It was actually after Clark retired. Uh, Nixie Callahan, the year he managed, and then the following season when Hugo Bedzik, who's more known for being a football coach. But yeah, he uh, he uh, fell out of favor. <laughs> I guess he he wasn't someone that drank, even though they used the terminology. Uh, he didn't keep in good condition. But I know the first time he was suspended, I believe in 1916, it was because he has been up out all night shooting dice at a game somewhere in the Pittsburgh neighborhood. So mm-hmm. that was why he actually got suspended that time. But he was an interesting character. And uh, a lot of other good... Kai Kai Kyler is my favorite player of all time. And I mean, I've, I've covered his story in his biography, but I was able to unearth some new information in this one. But I always felt it unfortunate that he didn't remain in Pittsburgh and could have been a part of an outfield with uh, Wayner Brothers for more than just uh, one season in 1927. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you, Ron. I could talk about dead ball era baseball all day. We will certainly have you back when the Pirates book is done. And uh, let's hope there's a Larry Ritter award or two here for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's always it's always a uh, privilege to be nominated. Uh, uh, it's, there's a lot of good uh, writers out there covering good topics on, on that era. That's, that's the main thing. It's, it's good for people that love uh, reading about the dead ball era. There's a lot of uh, books out there, and you can get a lot of information through uh, reading some great authors. All right. Well, thanks, Ron. We'll have you back another time. Take care. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.